This is VOCM News Talk. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. Here's VOCM News Talk host Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and I trust you're having a a good day. We're heading into the weekend now, and the temperature is going to take another plunge late in uh, the end of the weekend. So uh, we're going to enjoy some sunshine in the interim, I understand, for most parts of the province anyway. So do enjoy that if you can at all. Well, the big news uh, today internationally is the International Court of Justice in The Hague has issued a preliminary ruling in South Africa's case alleging Israel of genocide, but it stopped short of ordering a suspension of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. The United Nations highest court today ruled in favor of provisional measures against Israel, with Court President Joan Donahue expressing deep concern about the continuing loss of life and human suffering in Gaza. The court considers that with regard to the present situation, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing groups members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention when they are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part the group as such. The court is also of the view that Israel must take measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to the members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. So that is uh, Court President Joan Donahue today in The Hague delivering a part of that uh, preliminary ruling in South Africa's case alleging Israel of genocide. Media liaison, liaison sorry, with the St. John's Palestine Action Committee, John Harris, joins me now. Well, hello, John. Hi, how's it going, Linda? Good. So the International Court of Justice in The Hague has uh, delivered its um, uh, preliminary, I suppose, uh, ruling on um, the case put forward by South Africa. What's your response to that? Well, the ICJ is clear. Uh, There is sufficient evidence of dispute uh, for the genocide case uh, against Israel uh, they, the world's highest court looked at the South Africa's evidence and determined that the exi- there is ex- existence of ongoing genocide that is plausible. Now, it may, it may take a few years to determine uh, if there is genocide or not, but the court does order Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide. So uh, ICJ is taking this case very, very seriously, uh, which is a a good thing. It it says that Israel must ensure its forces do not commit genocide and ensure preservation of evidence of alleged genocide. So this is going to be an ongoing uh, case. Uh, It also strongly puts that Israel must allow humanitarian assistance for Gaza. Uh, So there is a, a, a lot here, and uh, South Africa's claim uh, has been t- taken very seriously by the ICJ. 
Ultimately, what will it mean? Well, this means that uh, we must uphold uh, these uh, rulings. Uh, Canada must firmly uh, ensure that Israel is allowing humanitarian assistance, uh, that the protected group Palestinians under the Genocide Convention are not killed. Uh, this is a, a very serious uh, uh, ruling. I, I think that you know our group will continue to push for a ceasefire. That is what needs to be done to prevent uh, a genocide that is ongoing in Gaza. Uh, and our group is going to continue to push for arms embargo and uh, uh, for a uh, end to this invasion. Uh, but this is a very serious ruling from the ICJ, and it, Israel it must take all measures to prevent this ongoing genocide. And of course, it comes on the eve of a day of remembrance for one of the worst and most horrific events in world history. A memorial was held in Ottawa today uh, ahead of the day of remembrance uh, for the Holocaust. Uh, what's your response to that? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we we must always uh, remember those that are lost in the Holocaust and uh you know, ongoing anti-Semitism in the world is a, is is a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, we also must look toward uh, Palestinians uh, and and, uh, and and trying to prevent an ongoing genocide as well. Uh, I think it's it's all a a very important thing that needs to be uh, looked at, and I I think that it's it's you know it's definitely a time for remembrance as well. So uh, a regular series of um, protests or rallies that have taken place uh, in uh, support of uh, uh, Palestinian lives and culture um, will continue this weekend, but because of the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, it's being pushed to Sunday. What, uh, what is the focus of this particular rally? Uh, this particular rally is going to... Uh talk about you know art and and culture uh and the importance of preserving uh palestinian culture that is in risk of of being lost in in cases of this this genocide uh it's also going to look at the what canada's role is on the international stage why we should be pushing for arms embargo uh why we need to be more firm in uh, affirming icj's ruling and uh trusting the court to make its judgment and following through with the pressure on Israel to prevent this genocide uh, and and to be uh, you know a, a a leader rather than a follower when it comes to uh, trying to uh, end this conflict. I think that this is a a, a very important time. The you know, there is a Canada is only allowing thousand uh, visitor visas in uh, from Gaza, uh, which I think. We need to be doing more. We need to step up to the plate in this time of, of, of suffering, and we're be seeing over 25,000 civilians uh, killed by Israel uh, in Gaza. It is a, a humanitarian crisis like never seen before. Gaza's population is 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 50% children, and uh, around 50% or 10,000 of those deaths have been children. Uh, We we seriously need to take a a stand when it comes to uh, this ongoing genocide. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about on, on Sunday. John Harris, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Linda. When we come back, we'll take you to a ceremony in Ottawa this morning marking the International Holocaust Day of Remembrance. This is News Talk on VOCM. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. And we are back. Well, thousands of Palestinians have fled the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus as fighting between Hamas and Israeli forces intensifies. That's as the Israeli military ordered residents of three neighborhoods and the refugee camp in the city to evacuate to a coastal area. The intense fighting comes as the United Nations top court ordered Israel to do all it can to prevent death, destruction and any acts of genocide in Gaza. But the International Court of Justice stopped short of ordering Israel to end its military offensive, and both Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his defense minister are vowing to press on. Meanwhile, the federal government has not responded to the International Court of Justice's ruling that Israel must try to limit death and destruction in Gaza. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau did not comment as he entered a caucus meeting this morning on Parliament Hill. The court case has split the Liberal caucus, and Trudeau has refused calls from Jewish and Muslim groups in Canada to stake out a clear position as other world leaders half. Well, tomorrow marks the 79th anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camp at Auschwitz-Birkenau when the world got the first real glimpse of the extent of the horror of Nazi Germany's efforts to exterminate the Jews. More than 6 million Jews and many others were systematically killed by Nazis in World War II. A memorial service was held in Ottawa today. Here is some of what Canada's special envoy on Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism, Deborah Lyons, had to say on a rainy morning in the nation's capital. The rise in anti-Semitism serves as an urgent call to action for all of us, a reminder that that flame of remembrance that Annette mentioned must not only reflect the past, but it has to illuminate our way into the future. We as Canadians cannot and we will not let the truth of the Holocaust be distorted nor be denied. It is our individual and collective responsibility to do so. The truth of the Holocaust, the stories of the survivors, will live on here in Canada. As we stand today in front of this monument, I urge all Canadians to work together in unity to defend our precious democracy and counter anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, distortion, inversion in all their manifestations, their ugly manifestations. Never again is now also means never again to be silent, never again to be indifferent. And that's some of what Canada's Special Envoy on Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Anti-Semitism, Deborah Lyons, had to say in Ottawa this morning. And speaking to the theme of remembrance, a new Holocaust knowledge and awareness survey conducted by the Claims Conference shows that more than 20% of Canadian millennials have either not heard of or are unsure if they've heard of the Holocaust. More than 60% were not aware that 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Richard Marceau, Vice President External Affairs and General Counsel, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, spoke on your VOCM mornings this morning. Some of those results are, are quite worrisome. Uh, the fact that 22%, as you mentioned, of millenniums haven't heard uh, of the Holocaust 
shows that the uh, the work of educating our young people um, needs to be stepped up. Um, it is one of the most important events in, in history, one that carries lessons for, for all of us, and one that uh, led to a whole uh, set of changes following the Second World War, including Charter of Rights and Freedom, UN Declaration of Human Rights, et cetera, et cetera. So as a country, as a province, as, as, as a society, we need to do better to educate our young people. Yeah, how concerning is it to you that some of these key findings from the Holocaust Knowledge and Awareness Survey do indicate that there is a lack of knowledge? It is very worrisome because we have, let's say... Uh, the Holocaust has universal and, and specific lessons. The universal lesson is where dehumanization of a group can lead to, and that is not specifically Jewish. And we've said after the Holocaust, never again, but we failed as a, as, a, as a human race. We saw what happened, for example, with Rwanda. We saw what happened with the Rohingyas and I can, with the Yazidis. And there's so many examples that show that we have failed to learn the lessons of the Holocaust. So that's one of the reasons why Holocaust education is important. The other more Jewish specific lessons of the Holocaust is we're seeing a, what the prime minister called a terrifying rise of, of anti-Semitism in Canada. Uh, Jews are attacked, synagogues are, are shot at, uh, synagogues are, are bombed uh, on campus, Jews are being bullied, they're being attacked, et cetera, et cetera. So we have not, as a country, learned the lessons of the Holocaust when we see a rise of anti-Semitism like we're seeing today in Canada. Richard, should Holocaust education be mandatory in schools? It should be, and there are already five provinces, Ontario, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, that made Holocaust education mandatory. It is our hope that um, that every Canadian province would uh, would follow the uh, this um, this trend, and that Holocaust education be mandatory across Canada. It is the results that we see today uh, in the survey show the need to do that. And it's that theme of remembrance that we're going to our next guest. Uh, Stuart May is in Ballorum. Hello, Stuart. Hi there, Linda. Yeah, I uh, I am the mayor here, but I have a different topic to talk to you about. Today. Sure. Uh, my mother was a war bride. Uh, uh, she passed away in 1981. Uh, her sister... Uh, her sister's four-year-old son were put through the gas chambers. Also, 40 of my mother's relatives were put through the gas chamber. Not just your mother's relatives, your relatives. My relatives, too, yes, yes. How does that make you feel? Well, every time uh, the Holocaust is remembered every year, we always think of that. And, you know... My father was in the Royal Newfoundland, 166th Royal Newfoundland Regiment of the 59th Royal Artillery, 23rd Battery. He came from a place called Pint Rosie, right next to below Garnish on the Beyond Peninsula. And they came here in 1945, after the war was over, they got married in England. And uh, my mother that a secret from us never told us that she was Jewish 
And people did keep those secrets sometimes to their grave. They never let anyone know because of that fear and that that need to protect their loved ones. That's right, Han. Yes, there is a book written by my mother's brother-in-law, whose who, uh, uh, wife and son were put through the gas chambers. He wrote a book on it called An Englishman in Auschwitz by Leon Greenman. So where was your mother from? Was she originally from England, or did she settle there? She was from England, uh, Bixio by the sea, and her parents uh, were uh, uh, came from Austria in the late 1800s. So how did her sister end up in the gas chamber? Do you know anything about that story? Uh, yes, they were taken by the Germans, uh, uh, in uh, Rockingham, and uh, uh, they they were taken on a train, and her uh, husband as well, and they were separated, and he didn't see them no more. He kept himself going for into 12 concentration camps, trying to make, see if he could find out what happened to them. My God, his wife and, and son... His wife and son. And I, uh, he, he uh, survived my, through all of that? Yes, he did. I and mean, it's a cruel survival at what he went through. Uh, my brothers and sisters, some of us, has toured England and uh, found out a lot of information on it. And I myself at the Jewish Museum in London, England. And when we went there, there's a room called Leon's Story. And it's the story of my mother's sister and her son and her her brother-in-law. And there, while we were there, we saw a picture of my mother when her sister got married in 1935. It must be very surreal to know, you know, coming from a town like Balorum, so sheltered, so isolated, so protected in many ways, to see the cruelty of the world before you and know that that's your bloodline. Yes, it is. Uh, every year on November the 11th, uh, I always do a talk at Remembrance Day service on it. Do you find it hard for people to, I guess, fully understand what happened? I think so, yes. A lot of people do, and but the thing is, and, and what I heard in the previous call you were talking to, it's good to keep the remembrance of it. Did you ever have an opportunity to talk to your uncle and his about his ordeal? Uh, I did not, but my sister did. And, is, and we, st- so- we still have an aunt that is alive. It was 95 years old, and she worked in the uh, as a social assistant with the uh, Jewish uh, Jewish community in London. Wow! So you still have a generation alive today to to tell those stories. Do you think it's important to pass them on to your children, your grandchildren, and the and the children around you in your community? Oh, by all means, yes. Does it uh, shock or hurt you to know that there are a lot of people growing up today that have never heard of the Holocaust? Oh, my God, yes. And something that should be, you know, it should be talking in the schools, mentioning the schools too, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, well, Stuart, thank you very much for telling us your very personal story. Oh, you're welcome. All right. All the best to you now. All right. Bye-bye now. All right. Goodbye. Uh, that's uh, Stuart May, the uh, mayor of Ballorum, um, and whose mother was a war bride and whose family uh, ended up her own sister and uh, nephew and uh, sent to the gas chamber, uh, never to be heard from again, uh, including 40 other relatives who went to the gas chambers. Just uh, uh, so that those connections are real and those connections are palpable uh, for a lot of people alive today. And it's important to repeat these stories so that people who could never conceive of something so monstrous, so incredibly cruel, um, for them to understand that these things did in fact happen and were allowed to happen simply because people at the time couldn't believe it to be true until it was all exposed uh, on uh, the date um, January 27th, when Auschwitz and Birkenau were finally liberated by the Soviets. Uh, just incredible uh, stuff. When we come back, uh, we're going to share with you uh, a number of stories, including a uh, redfish announcement that was made in uh, Gaspé today by the federal fisheries minister, and we'll get reaction to that as well coming up right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Well, thank you, Richard, and thank you, Claudette. Well, the federal government has announced the much-anticipated reopening of a commercial redfish fishery for the first time in 30 years. Federal Fisheries Minister Diane Le Boutelier made the announcement in her home riding of Gaspé today. The fishery will be reopened in phases, with the first two-year phase concentrating on the Gulf. Here's some of what the minister said today. Phase one of this reopened fishery will be for two years with allocation to Gulf streams harvesters and a pool of quota for indigenous harvesters. The remainder is allocated accordingly to the historic allocation holders. It's worth noting that Nova Scotia will return the largest redfish quota in Atlantic Canada and Quebec. Since the fishery has been closed for almost 30 years, we will be closely watching the participation in the fishery, the management issues that may arise, and how the market for redfish develops so that we can adjust accordingly. All in all, this long-awaited reopening is good news that will create new jobs and stimulate the economy of our coastal communities. This decision will not only provide a modest income to stream harvester who may want to transition to fishing redfish. It will also help advance reconciliation with indigenous peoples. It will also give us more time to gather data and it will provide industry with more predictability to develop new markets and build processing capacity. 
So that's some of what uh, Diane Le Boutlier said in her home riding of Gaspé today. And as you heard, she mentioned that Nova Scotia will retain the largest redfish quota in the region. Well, the announcement is not sitting well with the FFAW, who issued a news release just uh, shortly after that announcement was made. It says independent owner-operator harvesters in the Gulf of St. Lawrence are reeling from Minister Le Boutlier's announcement this afternoon, stating that the inshore coastal base fleet will only be allocated less than 25% of Unit 1 redfish, assumed to be and a far cry from the 50% needed to ensure financial solvency and economic sustainability in the region. Nearly 60% of the share will go to the corporate-owned offshore fleet in Nova Scotia, which the FFAW says uses factory freezer draggers that will not land or process product here in Canada. Uh, reading further from the release, today's announcement was a clear signal that the department has signed, sealed and delivered the abandonment of coastal communities and the tens of thousands of individuals who rely on sustainably managed fisheries, according to Greg Pretty. He says government had an opportunity to provide long-term economic sustainability to thousands of fish harvesters and plant workers in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, but instead they've decided to, as he put it, buy corporate votes. Well, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. And the big news, Claudette, today, uh, and I've been hearing the conversations being had in the entertainment world, is about Vince McMahon. Have you been following this? Oh, yeah, about the allegations, the sexual assault. Yeah, and uh, it's, um, you know, there's more and more media uh, um, uh, outlets now that are providing the details of that. A former WWE employee, that's the World Wrestling, what is it? Entertainment? Uh, entertainment, I yeah, think. Yeah, it used to be WW... F, wasn't it? The yeah, world... Yeah, well, I, well, I remember yes. growing up. Yeah, but, um, you know... Anyway, the World Wildlife Federation had something to say about that. A former WWE employee has filed a federal lawsuit accusing executive Vince McMahon and another former executive of serious sexual misconduct. Janelle Grant worked in the company's legal and talent departments. Her lawsuit, filed Thursday, also includes allegations that McMahon forced her into a sexual relationship in order for her to get and keep a job and passed around pornographic pictures and videos of her to other WWE employees. McMahon stepped down as WWE CEO in 2022 amid an investigation into allegations that match those in the lawsuit. He did not immediately comment. WWE's parent company says it is taking the allegations seriously. So uh, one um, big story that uh, a lot of people are uh, keeping a close eye on today. Um, This is also interesting. The estate of George Carlin has filed a lawsuit over a fake hour-long comedy special that purportedly uses artificial intelligence to recreate the late stand-up comic style and material. The lawsuit filed in federal court in Los Angeles on Thursday asks a judge to force Dudzy or Dudzy, the podcast company behind the project, to immediately take it down. The lawsuit, which also seeks unspecified damages, says the defendants are violating Carlin's right of publicity and the copyrights on his work. A voiceover at the start of the audio special says an AI engine created 
created it, sorry, by listening to 50 years of the work of Carlin, who died back in 2008. And we're going to see more and more, I would suspect, of these types of challenges to this technology and the way people are using it or, and or abusing it until appropriate, I suppose, uh, laws or legislation is brought forward in various jurisdictions. So uh, very interesting indeed and part of uh, a much larger conversation that's being had in uh, recent months and Days. Yeah, I get, you know, case by case basis. The name of the special, I think, is called I'm Glad I'm Dead. So can you imagine if the family wasn't involved in this? Just how hurtful this this could be. And other people would believe that certain things keep the legacy going on and it, it's a way to keep your loved ones going on. But like you said, we're so new into the legislation and this is a new beast. This is one that's just getting smarter and smarter and smarter. This is going to be ongoing trying to keep up with AI. When it comes to the creative process and um, uh, people whose life is lived in the, you know, and in the spotlight. In the spotlight, so to speak. Um, you know, they have all kinds of contractual uh, protections, if you will, uh, when it comes to their own work and that. But if they don't have any permission over somebody using their voice or their image or whatever the case may be, or their creative output, uh, because AI is basically scraping what's already out there and just regurgitating, regurgitating it, it. Um, you know, those those reasons, and that's why we saw this um, uh, strike in Los Angeles, in, in Hollywood, uh, recently about that kind of thing. But I always find it creepy. There's an ad on TV today that there, with... Um, Matthew McConaughey was Oh, I haven't point? seen that one, there, but there's one, one with, with um, uh, Wayne Gretzky. Oh, I saw that. I that I just that find one. creepy. At first, I my brain couldn't understand what yeah. the hell I was looking at. At first, I was like... Okay, so is this guy supposed to be his awkwardly made son or something? But no, yeah. I realized it after he's looking in the mirror at himself. When he was younger. Talking to himself as a younger person. Yeah. It's creepy. Yeah, I, I got to say that is a, a creepy one. I get the ad, but it, it was really creepy. And it took me a while to really understand that one, too. Yeah. But AI right yeah, yeah. Um, so you know is it a good idea is it not a good idea if it's done well I suppose and if it's done uh, for the right reasons I guess if it's if done you know as a mean? tool to help somebody do something and it doesn't hurt somebody else or their reputation or cause copyright infringement or personal autonomy per yeah exactly right I mean um, George Carlin is dead he couldn't possibly give consent permission or consent yeah. to that now you know uh, people who are in the limelight like that and and have a legacy they usually have you know an estate that takes care of that for them but um, yeah it's it raises m many many questions for sure well, when we come back, and th you're going to find this one heartwarming, there's a little boy in Carboneer who had a birthday recently, and he decided to, instead of accepting gifts, he decided to collect some money. And we'll tell you a little bit more, um, not for himself, but for animals. Anyway, we'll tell you more about that when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
And we are back. Well, a Carboneer boy has raised some big money for local animal rescue efforts on his 13th birthday. Jacob Parsons took the occasion to urge people to pledge at least $5 for animal rescue in the province. His mom, Julia Parsons, joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Julia. Hi, how are you? Great. How are things in beautiful Carboneer? Cold today. Very cold. Sun is shining, though. That's nice. It was better than the snow squalls we've been having. For sure. So your son just celebrated his 13th birthday, and he decided he wanted to share the love. Tell us a little bit about uh, Jacob's birthday challenge. Well, he did the same thing last year as he did this year. Um, Basically, when his birthday rolls around, um, and this was his 13th birthday, like you said, um, he decides that he wants to help raise money for our rescue um, instead of receiving gifts. So basically, he challenges friends, family, anyone he knows to donate $5 to the rescue. And then the money that he receives out of that, he usually purchases cat food, cat litter, um, any necessities that we need. But now this year was a bit different because he actually raised, well, right now, yesterday's total was 1590 but he has had, like, funds come in since. So he's well over $1,600 now. Um, we decided, like, between us, because, like, it was a large amount of money, um, he donated $600 to other small rescues in the area. Um, well, actually, one of the rescues is in Boyd's Cove. Another rescue is in Port of Basque. Um, so basically, he's done very, very well. And yesterday as well, we received a donation of 120 bags of cat food. So the rest of the money, he, as of right now, is just going to sit on our vet account at Backaloo Trail until we can help another animal in need. That's incredible. And, and I guess there's no one uh, better than yourself or anyone else in animal rescue can tell you that every dollar counts. Absolutely. Every bag of cat food, every box of litter, anything, it all adds up. No matter what it is, like the smallest thing, it it always adds up. It helps. Like last year alone, our rescue, I think we did over 500 adoptions. So... Like, we have cats and kittens. Um, We've even had dogs. Uh, We've had pretty much anything, rabbits. Um, And we don't know exactly when they're going to show up, what the story is going to be, and what help they're going to need. So uh, what's the current status of, of the shelter? Are any animals in there now? Well, we don't have a shelter. We work directly out of foster homes. Um, one day, hopefully, we may have a shelter. Um, but right now, we're working out of foster homes. We have uh, maybe 15 kittens, seven or eight adults currently um, placed in fosters. But again, we get messages like daily um, stray cats, injured cats, and of course, without fosters we can't take them in and it's a sad sad situation because all the shelters as well are full like our backloo trail spca here they're full um st john's spca is always full as well so we really rely on fosters 
to really help us at the jam because well without fosters we wouldn't even be possible. But luckily we do have some great fosters. But again, they're always full as well. Like as I know today I do believe there's two kittens coming in. Uh that's gonna end up at a foster. Um and we're also working on a large I guess we're gonna it's it's a large colony cleanup. Um, in Hermitage, um, it's some cats that have been living in the dump, and there's probably about 50-plus cats there. So we've actually teamed up with a couple of other rescues to actually help them out. So we're going to be transporting cats back this way. Cats are going to Port of Basque. Cats are going to be everywhere. <laughs> so like I said, we're really relying right now on fosters for a lot of it because Sadly, there's nowhere for them to go. And, like, our weather has been so extremely cold that, like, we did actually purchase uh, their heated cat houses, and you can get them on Amazon. So we've purchased some of them, and we've been putting them in places, trying to help the strays, trying to help ferals. It's it's a nonstop process. It's an everyday process. Well, Julia Parsons, I, I do appreciate your time, and uh, happy birthday to Jacob. Well done. All right. Thank you very much for your time. That's Julia Parsons, whose son Jacob uh, issued a little birthday challenge and raised him $1,600, would you believe, by asking people to donate $5 to um, Animal Rescue in Newfoundland and Labrador. So well done. I think that's the, that's the successful part of it. I was thinking, my gosh, how did he do it? But I find $5 is not too much to ask. And if you put that out on social media, um, and lots of people do it, that it's not a burden on just a couple of family members trying to come up with the money for the uh, f- for the shelters or for in this case the fosters. So I think I think that's really smart. And it's also, gosh, I can only imagine the child, the adult that child is going to grow into with that compassion for for animals. I love it. it was and someone a- even dropped off cat food, which is always wanted yeah, and needed. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You can't uh, do enough for shelters. You, you know, cat food. I, I they're always uh, populating my feed because I'm always looking at animal things and it looks like that you know so many shelters need the uh, wo- towels rags um, food like you mentioned litter cat litter anything at all that an animal could need if uh, you have anything extra to give to your local shelter because uh, like you heard the work never stops yeah it really doesn't well um, I don't know um, have you had your supper yet no no, I haven't had my. <laughs> why? What? I, well, I, I don't know. Oh this, no. It's such an unusual story. The off, fact that yeah. we're going to be talking about this publicly, I find really unusual. I don't even know the topic. This is scaring me right now. Queen Camilla oh, yes. says that uh, King Charles III is doing well after undergoing a corrective procedure for an enlarged prostate. Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about these types of things. It's just so strange to talk about it in this context. With if you royalty? know what I'm saying. Now, by the same token, uh, the fact that King Charles has come forward and talked openly about this apparently has led to a huge surge of uh, men coming forward for to get checked for their prostate. See, that's amazing. In the UK. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- 
there's goodness in this. But I just find it kind of <laughs> strange to be talking about one particular person's right. <laughs> who I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> one particular person's uh, prostate. Buckingham Palace says the 75-year-old monarch was admitted to the London Clinic where the Princess of Wales, his daughter-in-law, is still recovering from that abdominal surgery that was announced on the same day that he announced his troubles. Well, the king who entered the hospital with Camilla at his side on Friday visited Kate at the clinic after he arrived. Charles was diagnosed with the benign condition on January 17th after he experienced undisclosed symptoms. He uh, canceled engagements and was urged to rest ahead of the procedure, which has concluded by Friday afternoon. So, while it is a first, I think, that we've started talking Talking about a king's prostate, um, apparently it's having good ramifications. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so many ways to look at it. I love that because you can never have enough awareness. And just like you said, so many people are going to get checked. He's indirectly, I guess, could be saving lives just by me- by mentioning that, which is great. And then on the other hand, you have Kate, who does not want to disclose her medical con- whatever the reason why she's in in hospital uh, recovering. But then she's due her privacy as well. So there's two ways. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, uh, by all from the outside looking in it looks like uh, whatever Kate is facing was was serious although they say it was not cancerous so that's uh, encouraging to hear but um, um, yeah it's uh, it's different it's unusual it is but it's it's nice that the times are changing you know it's a time when when everybody had to keep those things to themselves and they say uh, I'm no expert on the matter but they say that as a man ages he will develop issues with his prostate and of course uh, King Charles in his mid-70s by now so uh, also another uh, reason to highlight those kinds of things and make wives and or uh, men that say hey hey time for you which go check this out you'll notice that's a big thing here too like with ride for dad around father's day it's another awareness campaign and more men get checked and hopefully more men will be detected early so it's yeah. great that he has come out and said that yeah no uh, all all good uh, it's just that when you talk about um <laughs> Uh, what was it? Yeah. Um, undisclosed symptoms. <laughs> uh, so I picked up on that too, and I'm like, I'm glad certain things are kept, you know, because we don't need to know everything. We yeah. need to know enough that could help change our lives, but we don't need to know everything. A lot of trips to the royal chamber <laughs> late at night, I would imagine. Um, frequent trips to the uh, royal bathroom, <laughs> the, to the throne. Yes. <laughs> well done. Uh, anyway, on that note, we'll leave it there. But you know what? If that's something, if this is going to if this is what it's going to take for you to, um, you know, get checked, pick up the phone and make an appointment, well then, good. Um, we'll be back on Monday. So do join us then. Enjoy your weekend in the meantime. Uh, stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye for now.